Well, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to Official Rich in DC. I am so pumped about today's episode. Hey, listen, if you're watching by way of YouTube, do me a favor right now. Would you like this video? Would you comment on this video? Would you subscribe to this page? Share it if you're enjoying it. And at the same time, if you're listening by way of podcast, do the same thing, man. Leave a review. It helps us so very much. I am so excited about today's episode. Today, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Alan Tennyson. He teaches theology at North Central University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And our conversation is really going to zero in on slavery in the Bible. I don't know about you, but have you ever been reading the Bible before and you see these portions of scripture where it says, slaves obey your masters? Do you ever read it and go, yo, why don't they just denounce slavery? I don't know about you, but I'm having so many conversations with friends and colleagues and even friends that don't know Jesus. And some of them would even tell me, hey, uh, I would follow Jesus, but that book that you guys obey, the Bible, well, it actually perpetuates oppression. I don't believe that to be true, but today I'm asking an expert all of the questions. What's up with slavery in the Bible? Can we get some counsel? Can we get some advice? Not only does he teach theology, but the school is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which I believe creates, well, an even more important cultural moment. As we all watch this past year, the killing of George Floyd, Dr. Tennyson has found himself having many conversations around race, race reconciliation, and of course, equality for all. Today, we're gonna get his answers around slavery in the Bible. Without any further ado, let's talk to Dr. Alan Tennyson. Well, Dr. Tennyson, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today. How are you? I am doing very well. It's exciting to be here. Well, we are so excited that you would join us and I'm excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to it. Before we kind of get into this and dive right into this content, maybe just take a moment. Uh, Some of the viewers today uh, know about you, know about your ministry, know about what it is that you're bringing to the table today, but would you just take a moment and just kind of just let everybody know who you are, where you come from, what you're up to these days, and really why we're talking to you about this subject. Well, Pastor Rich, thank you. I'm Alan Tennyson. I am a professor at North Central University. I also serve there as the Dean of the College of Church Leadership and has been in that role for about 10 years now. Uh, Before then, I was a pastor in Los Angeles, and I also had the opportunity to teach as a visiting professor at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, It is just a joy to be able to be here and uh, to talk to you about the Word of God. Well, we're excited about it, and uh, today we wanted to kind of go to some expert counsel because we're talking about a topic that is uh, very touchy especially uh, in 2020. I know uh, in my 36 years, it seems like we are at a fever pitch when it comes to the area of things like racism and inequality. And today we're going to lean into this area in the Bible where we see this word slavery show up. And really the reason why I want to have this conversation, aside from all of the social things that are taking place, is that at VU Church, the church that I lead right now, we are studying the book of 1 Peter. And I was getting ready as we were outlining this letter, which is such a beautiful letter, really about enduring and not giving up in in difficult times. Lot of great applications that we can make today as we hear from what Peter wrote 2,000 years ago. But I found myself in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I got to this point in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, 
but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit and was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now that's a whole lot right there and a whole lot to unpack, but I wanna just go back to verse 18 and this idea of slavery because over and over again, as I open up my Bible, the New Testament, I know there's people watching today and we see this subject matter come up. Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it. And ultimately when they talk about slavery, I suppose my big question today that I want us to try to tackle is why on earth do they not just automatically denounce it? They denounce lots of other things. They, they talk about lots of different sins. How come in these writings, they don't just quickly and clearly say, stop being slave owners, get rid of all of your slaves. Slavery is wrong. Can you, can you help us out today as we kind of kick off this conversation, understanding maybe the cultural context of of Rome versus where we're at today or even modern day ideas of slavery? Yeah, I, I would be happy to do that. I mean, the first thing I would wanna highlight is we are talking about a different culture and it has a very different relationship to slavery than what we do in our culture. And I wanna say upfront, you know, I'm very conscious in talking about this that I'm coming at this from a different context than a lot of people in this country for whom slavery is a very real thing because of the history of their uh, family. And that I grew up in a generation that among white people, we didn't really talk about slavery because we didn't want to bring it. It was something we wanted to treat as history, not as something we wanted to treat as still having an impact in our culture. And so as I talk about this, I don't mean to be dismissive of the concerns that we have as Americans in the 21st century reading these passages. But I do wanna highlight that while it seems impossible for us to read this and not have in mind new world slavery, uh, the slavery of antebellum South, uh, this is not something that was in the mind of the authors when they were writing. They didn't know new world slavery. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of ways in which Greco-Roman slavery, the slavery at that time was simply different than new world slavery. One was ethnicity wasn't a deciding factor. You weren't a slave because of your ethnic background. Uh, slaves were treated towards education in a lot of contexts because they were expected in some places to be more educated than the master because they were to actually do a sensitive social function in that culture. Slaves were also allowed to own property in a lot of places. Uh, not just that, but a lot of people would hire out slaves to other people for profit sharing. So a slave who was working would get a third of what the master was getting for hiring them out which meant they could save money to buy their freedom. Slaves were allowed to publicly assemble. And here's one of the biggest differences. Uh, in Rome, the expectation was, is that you would be freed from slavery around the age of 30. Uh, it was very common for wow. people to be set free once they turned 30 or even before so, uh, partly uh, because 
slavery was seen as a way of onroading people into Roman citizenship. So a foreign-born person could become a slave, and then once they were set free, they would have learned a skill, an artisan trade or craft, and they were able to enter into Roman citizenship. In fact, under Augustine, so many slaves were being set free and turned into Roman citizens, it was actually unbalancing the society, and he had to put a limit on how many slaves could be freed a year. Mm. But some scholars have argued when you think of slavery in Rome, you don't think of it as something permanent, you think of it as a process, as a process in which people would turn to other things. Uh, a lot of masters would free their slaves at this time. One, because once they had enough money to pay for their freedom, uh, freeing themselves would actually be more uh, would be cheaper for the owner than simply buying a new slave. I'd give you 200 shekels for my freedom, and you can hire me out or hire a new slave for 50 shekels. Wow. So it's just a better deal for you financially. A lot of owners would say, if we set you free, would you promise to take care of us for the rest of our life? And they would enter into another kind of business contract so that you would work for them, but you would earn money the entire time you were doing it. Uh, some people would actually sell themselves into slavery. Because in this culture, being a slave wasn't the worst thing that could happen to you. There were forms of poverty that were much less worse than slavery. And if you were the slave of someone who was well-to-do, you actually benefited from their social status. And you now had a social status over free people who weren't slaves. And wow. so some people would choose that kind of life knowing that they would likely be set free by the time they were 30 and be set for life. Uh, we actually know of Roman governors who started off as slaves in someone's house. And that became their kind of roadmap to becoming someone of importance and power in the culture. So when we think of slavery in those terms, we're not thinking of it in the way that we do when we think of New World slavery. But I will say this. There was a problem with, with slavery. I, I mean, one, it was still slavery. If you become a slave, you don't have the right to work for who you want to. You don't have the right to go where you want to go. You don't have the right to represent yourself in court. In Rome, you're not a legal person once you're a slave, and you're still considered property, meaning that for the time that I'm a slave, I could be sold to another person. So it's not that slavery was a good thing. It's simply that slavery wasn't the same exact kind of thing that we think of as New World slavery. Well, I think and another issue... Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I think it's really helpful to what you're saying because, honestly, I've had so many conversations with friends and then many friends that are not believers or followers of Jesus. And this is a big hangup for them going, man, in many ways, it feels like the Bible is perpetuating um, some of these inequalities or oppression, if you will. But it's just fascinating when you start talking about the context of when these guys are writing this about the subject of slavery. For instance, you just said that some people would actually sell themselves into slavery because it was almost a leg up or a higher place in society or even be wealthier or be in a a stronger place of power that there's actually something lower than being a slave. And that's just a, that's a fascinating idea that so many people don't realize that even as I come around this, I'm going, oh, okay, here's Peter now giving instruction to people with this living hope that they have in Jesus, with this eternal reward, with this mindset, not of the temporary, but of the eternal, that wherever you find yourself in society, rich or poor, uh, slave or master, what are your rules of engagement? What is the behavior that should come out of your belief mechanism? And just as we're leaning into this, I've just heard you teach and the comparisons that you made on the cultural side are important. Maybe just lean in a little bit and, and help us understand and help me understand a little bit. What, what is the viewpoint of, of these writers in terms of are they 
Are they endorsing slavery? Are they okay with slavery? Is, is Peter okay with it from your opinion? Is Paul all right with slavery going forth? Do they think it's okay to do or are they opposed to it? Uh, first off, you've got to think, what was the other option that they had? Abolitionism did not exist. And so we're expecting them to come out against slavery as if there was some other alternative in Roman society when it was something that was so built into the economy, to the culture, but they still came at it from a Jewish perspective. And, and this is, you know, if you read about slavery in the Old Testament, there's some differences between slavery in the Old Testament and slavery in the West of the world. Slavery is pretty much universal in the ancient world. Uh, so to talk about why don't we just not have slaves would have been something that would have been kind of unheard of. And what do you mean? I don't understand what you're talking about. It's like saying, let's have an economy, but let's not have any businesses. I don't understand what that means. So they have to talk about it within the realm of what's possible for them. But, you know, in Israel, in the Old Testament, uh, they had a law that if you had a Hebrew slave, that slave had to be set free after six years. So slavery was always a time thing. It was not a permanent thing. Now, a foreign person could be a slave more permanently, but even then, they could also be set free as someone who joins with the people of Israel. And some scholars have said that really the Old Testament is the first piece of literature in world literature that actually speaks of the rights of slaves beyond the rights of the slave owner. That slaves had a right unto themselves beyond the interest of their master. So for example, in the Old Testament, the master's power is never absolute. You're not allowed to injure your slave. And it says that if you injure a slave, such as you cracked a tooth or image an, image an eye, something that's fragile on their body, that in itself means that slave has won their freedom. Uh, you are not allowed to take holidays away from the slave. The slaves in Israel, even the foreign-born slaves, are supposed to enjoy Sabbath the same as everyone else. Everybody gets a day off. And the fact that many people became slaves because of poverty or because of war, when the Bible talks about an end to poverty and an end to war, and that's a promise in the Old Testament, there will come a day when we won't have to be poor. There will come a day when we will beat our swords into uh, farming instruments. We're not going to have to fight anymore. Well, that takes away where slaves come from. So there's already this implied hope that we will reach a point where the conditions in which people are enslaved no longer exist. And of course, the call to bring Gentiles into the nation of Israel would already take away this unequal treatment of slaves. So that some have argued that in the Old Testament, you already found the groundwork being laid for an end to slavery. But in the New Testament, it just gets carried forward. I mean, we don't want to miss that Paul does condemn slave trade in 1 Timothy 1.10. Jesus prays that we would forgive our debts even as we forgive our debtors in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. And though we spiritualize that to think of sin, the truth is, one of the most common ways that people became slaves is because of debt. And if Jesus is asking us to forgive those who owe us so that we can be forgiven, that's a significant stance in a world of slavery. Uh, Paul also condemns people who don't work for themselves in 1 Thessalonians 4. And again, the point of having a slave is so that they would do the work for you. In the Roman world, it was seen that slavery or that day labor was somehow beneath the role of citizens. And yet Paul says, you need to know how to work with your hands, which seems to take away one of the conditions for slavery. Certainly in the church, all slaves are treated as equal to everyone else. Galatians 3, 28 or 26 through 28, 
There's no more slave nor free. We're all standing together equal in the eyes of God. Paul also encourages slaves to be treated well individually. We come to his letter to Philemon, in which he is dealing with the slave Onesimus, who ran from Philemon and ran to Paul over some issue. And Paul writes a letter and says, look, you have this man, Philemon, he has run to me from you, or you have this man, Onesimus, who's run to me from you, and Philemon, I want you as his master to no longer see him as a slave, but to treat him like your brother. Mm. And by the way, I'm coming to visit you, and I want you to prepare a room for me, which means I'm coming to check up on you. And some argue that the context of this is that Philemon might not be setting Onesimus free the way he should, and that Paul is writing this letter to say, he's coming back to me now, now to you from me as a brother in Christ, you're to treat him that way. And that Paul is implying and asking that you need to set this man free. Uh, one of the contexts for where we come to 1 Peter chapter 2 is that a slave in a household would be treated in some sense like a member of the household, which meant that whatever the religion of the household was, that would be the religion of the slave. Mm. Now imagine a church that is filled with slaves who are serving Christ, and that's not who their master serves. That in itself seems to threaten the household. And there is a tension here that we have people in our church who are not supposed to be in our church because that's not the religion of their household. So how are they to respond to their master when they don't share the same faith? Well, when Paul writes, he wow. writes a whole set of codes on how you're to behave because, again, there are people in households who are Christian, and the whole household isn't the same thing. So what do you do? And Paul has to say, you need to be careful about how you approach this. Uh, if you are a slave, you need to be very aware that you don't take advantage of your newfound freedom in Christ to get yourself in trouble with your master. Mm. But at the same time, it breaks to masters. If you're a master, you need to recognize that you're also a slave to Christ. And how you treat your slave, you're going to be held accountable to before God. Now, when Peter writes, he doesn't address the masters at all. Because Peter seems to be writing a slightly different way. He's talking to the church in terms of their public witness. And Peter is really concerned that how we deal with power is done in such a way that it doesn't damage who we're to represent as God before others. Mm. That we're representing the king, and we want to make sure we do that in a good way. And one thing that I do want to stress is that when we talk about 1 Peter 2, don't read this as if Peter is telling slaves— okay, you're being beaten all the time, just learn to accept it with a grin. Peter isn't a master writing to a slave, telling them to accept their lot in life. He is someone who doesn't have any power, writing to someone else who also doesn't have it. Wow. And he's telling them to be very careful of how they treat power. It's more like a slave saying to another slave, keep your head down. Wow. But the whole fear for Peter and for Paul is this that if we don't handle abuse well, it's going to affect our public witness. And in particular, if we handle it the way the world handles it, we're not going to look any different than the world. Hmm. For him, if you're being abused because you're doing the wrong things, you're just giving justification for that abuse. But if you're being abused for doing the right things, now that abuse is unjustified, and you're actually able to turn that master's attention to Christ. So be sure that you're not treating power like fighting fire with fire. And by the way, as a slave, you don't have the firepower anyway. 
but make sure that the way that you handle this isn't a way that becomes deserved and now is excused. Mm. He's not justifying abuse, but he's trying to put it in the context of what's actually going to work. And the other thing that I think is interesting is in the ancient world, you have other household goals, what we call this, uh, where you talk about how someone is to behave in the household, but typically they're only ever written to the people who are in charge. You're telling the man of the house, literally, how he is to be a husband, how he is to be a father, how he is to be a master, and you don't write to anyone else because they don't really matter. But here, Paul and Peter are writing to slaves as if they're moral agents who are accountable to God themselves, as if they have worth. The very fact that Peter is addressing the slave in this way is showing that the slave has their own moral dignity. Mm. I think this is all very, very helpful, especially you know in our reading right now of 1 Peter, to clarify, because I think people are out there listening, what Dr. Tennyson is saying is that in no way does the Bible endorse slavery. In fact, I think that the Bible creates the critique of slavery. The reason why we don't have slavery, the reason why we even know today that it's wrong, in many ways is because of a biblical world view. Um, Dr. Tennyson, maybe lean into that for a moment. Just the idea, like, I, I love this concept that from a cultural standpoint, it's sort of like, if we go back 100 years, could anyone even imagine an iPhone? Um, not necessarily. It was a process over time that we got to. Now that we have an iPhone, we can't imagine a world without one. As these guys are writing, the world, it's so in the fabric, if you will, uh, of the world that they live in, slavery. Not from a black and white point of view or from your ethnicity, but um, maybe more from a class system or prisoners of war or nations destroying other nations um, or people buying slaves. It was almost much more of a commodity, it sounds like, in the industry of the time being. With all that being said, these writers in the New Testament, followers of Jesus, they are presenting a new way of life and a new rhythm. And it's God's word that actually gives us today the critique of freedom for all and equality for all. Can we, can we talk about that a little bit? Because my concern in all this, once again, are my friends that don't know Jesus. And my concern is right now, the times that we're living in with all of this discussion going around, around race and inequality, that for one second that we would say that the Bible is the thing that is oppressing people. No, I believe the Bible and God's word is liberating and it brings freedom for all. It's man who messes up God's word. God's word is beautiful and is true. Just lean into that idea again, just about the Bible creating the critique of slavery in itself. It's not endorsing it. It actually does condemn it. Yeah, and I appreciate what you said earlier that we, we can only imagine what we can imagine. Mm. Uh, you know, sometimes I use this analogy that today we are very concerned, justifiably so, about prison reform. Yes. Of wanting to see uh, the way that we imprison people the way that our court system works to be redone. But imagine a time, centuries from now, where we don't have prisons anymore, where we have figured out a way to handle crime that doesn't require this. Now, every way that we try to reform prison is going to feel oppressive to that generation mm. because why aren't you getting prisons? Well, because we didn't know how else to do it. Wow. Reform the system that we have, and what you're doing is you're reading into it the fact that you now have a completely different system, and you don't know why we're just saying, well, just don't imprison people. Well, we don't have that option. What we're trying to do is make prison as just as possible. 
So one, we have to deal with what the writers were capable of imagining. Secondly, we also have to remember Christianity is a very small group of people at the time the New Testament is written. Some of these letters may have been written to no more than 20 people in a room. Mm. So it's not as if they have the means to simply overthrow society. They're also bound by that limitation and very aware that most of the people in the room have no cultural power whatsoever. And they're trying to teach them how to live out their faith in that light. It's also the case that if we are dealing with a slavery that is self-done, so that someone has sold themselves into slavery, just condemning slavery is now condemning someone for being poor. Because you're taking away the only option they had to lift themselves out of poverty. You don't understand why they sold themselves into slavery. And now you're not condemning slavery, you're actually condemning the slave. Now, again, if there was a one-on-one situation that needed to be dealt with, we wouldn't expect it to be dealt with in a letter because the letter is written to the whole church. So we would expect them to deal with unique situations one-on-one, but in a letter, they're dealing with what the church as a whole shares, and it's a community of slavery that is it's unimaginable not to happen. So on the one hand, abolitionism is not an option for them to really consider. But I do think that the Bible creates the conditions for abolitionism. Uh, early Christians, were, no, we're told, would actually sell themselves into slavery. Why? Because they wanted to set free other Christians who were held in slavery. The idea seems to be this, that if we had a believer in our church that was being mistreated by their owner, then we would buy out their contract with some other owner that we trusted so that that person could be set free. Well, Why? Well, we know we're going to be set free by the time we're 30 anyway. So we're just trying to help this person get out now. So you already have a church with this Bible that's figuring ways of trying to free slaves that's not overthrowing a society they don't have the power to overthrow. We also know that slavery was eventually condemned due to biblical Christianity. Abolitionism comes out of how we read the Bible. It becomes an option. It becomes a choice because of how people understood the Bible to talk about human rights to talk about human identity, what it meant to be in the image of God. And we also know that New World slavery was constantly threatened by biblical Christianity. While we have a history of people who are using the Bible to justify slavery, we can't forget that that's because the Bible was first being used to attack slavery. It was this gesture of self-defense. People were using the Bible to defend slavery because of how much the Bible was being used to attack slavery. Mm. And slave owners were very concerned about how it was being used against them. But here's the thing. The Bible was never the book of the oppressor. It was always the book of the oppressed. Come on. And there was always a fear because everyone who's writing this from the Old Testament through the Old Testament to the New Testament are always in a position of powerlessness against someone else. It's always a message to the oppressed. And there was a real fear of what happens if slaves get this message. So we know that there were owners who did everything they could to make sure Christianity didn't get to the slave. But once it did anyway, then how do we make sure that they learn what they should learn and not what they shouldn't learn, which is the full message of the Bible? Mm. And so we find it being weaponized against them and being turned into the book of the oppressor rather than what it was, but it was scripture for the oppressed. And I love this concept right now because what you just said, it just fires me up that the Bible was never the book of the oppressor. 
It's always been the book of the oppressed. The scripture says that God is close to the broken hearted. And, you know, as we're talking today, you even bring up something that's quite relevant today in society, which is the topic of even prison reform. Where do you think the tension lands today with believers around social justice issues where we are wanting to help, we are wanting to be a part of the solution, but at times the problems that we are presented, they seem so complex, um, they seem so convoluted, they seem so messy, that at times it becomes so difficult to be a part of the solution. We've come a long way. I don't think anybody is denying that. When we go all the way back to the writings uh, of Peter as he's writing to this first century church, to where we are today in 2020, no doubt we live in a broken, sinful world and we're still dealing with the ripple effects of shame and condemnation and inequality and oppression. But there is a remnant called the church. There is the people of God still here on the earth. And I believe that we're called to move forward from glory to glory, grace to grace, strength to strength. Um, but it seems like we're at a, at a very interesting crossroads, maybe in the body of Christ, but maybe just as our nation, when it comes to this topic of social justice, things like prison reform. <laughs> it is frightening to think about what my grandkids might be critiquing you and I of for allowing on our watch. At the same time, I don't know of a better way. I don't know how to end criminal behavior. I don't know how to rehabilitate somebody who's done something wrong in society. I believe that we will get better, but it's going to require us to do something. Where do you land today in terms of the body of Christ and believers and Christians and how they should operate, how they should interact, and how they should be a part of the solution when it comes to issues like social justice? I think we have to stay in the trajectory the Bible has set us on, but realize the Bible is not giving us an endpoint in itself, it's pointing us to the promise of God as the endpoint. That we aren't yet to the end of scripture and where we are in our own lives. So that, you know, N.T. Wright says it this way, you almost think of the Bible as a five-act play, and we have had everything up to act four, and what's missing are the scenes that lead us to the end of act five. We know how it ends, and we know how we got to where we are now, so how are we gonna complete that? Mm. How are we gonna get all the way to act five recognize scripture has put us on a trajectory. Another scholar, William Webb, uh, will make this argument that any reading of scripture has to be what he calls redemptive historical, which what he means is you have to realize that scripture stands to the culture that first received it and the culture that's still being transformed by it. And he actually gives us the example of slavery so that in scripture, you have a corrections of slavery in a culture that can't imagine not having slavery. But those corrections are so numerous. It's correcting so many abuses of slavery that it eventually leads us to the current culture where slavery itself has been condemned, but we're not done yet. Why? Because the Bible also condemns poverty. Mm. The Bible also condemns any form of injustice. Mm. We are still on the trajectory scripture sets us on of reaching a place where God will wipe every tear from their eye where people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will be seated around his throne in worship, a place where we are one full community together. So what do we need to do in our own time, in our own day, to work towards that? And I think what matters is really the question of, are we working towards that? We're not achieving the end to all human abuses in our lifetime. But we can't even imagine, say, an economic system that doesn't have poor people right? How do we reach that? What do we do to get there? Well, there are things we can work on today that we know could be correct. 
So let's focus on that thing. And once that's done, maybe we'll be able to focus on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But we see it as part of our Christian witness. Because when we bear witness to the coming of Christ, we're bearing witness to the coming of God's kingdom. And it's in God's kingdom that everything gets set right. So in the meantime, by working towards issues of social justice, we're actually reflecting our belief that the time is coming when God will set the world completely right. So and scripture has put us on that trajectory. So beautifully said. I think the thing that I've really appreciated about Peter in the writing that we're talking about today is just his ability, especially in chapter one, to lay a beautiful foundation of once again of what it is that we are living for and the living hope that we have found in Jesus. We see Paul do this over and over again, that he will establish doctrine and theological truths, the centrality, the supremacy, the sufficiency of Jesus. And then it seems like they give the behavior modifications or the rules of engagement of the day. And I love this concept that you're talking about right now, just in terms of in our lifetime, in our cultural context, what can we do to be a part of the solution? As I'm reading 1 Peter chapter 2, and I land on this part as a reader, and now you're just being Professor Tennyson for a moment, and I get to this part where it says, now slaves, and we talk about masters, I am not a slave. Um, how can I apply this truth? What, what, is I, what does my church need to know? What does everybody in YouTube world right now need to know that's come on? What's everyone on social media that's, that's listening to this? Why is this relevant for us today? Why, why, why should this be preached Today, should why am I tempted to skip over that? Like, give us something about what we can apply and how does it become relevant for our life and how we take it into 2020 and the world that we find ourselves in right now with a lot of division, a lot of pressure. Not the easiest time to be a Bible believing Christian, but uh, we still cling to that same hope that Peter talks about. How do I apply this portion of the text to my everyday life? Well, let me let me go back to a little bit of foundational stuff and then let's hit this application. In 1 Peter 2, and it's probably what you, you've already talked about to your church, he gives this beautiful line to the church where he says what? You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's chosen people. And he's using the exact line that God gave to Israel in Exodus 19. And the point was this. God wants a people so that God can win all people. He wants there to be a people who will live as a community in such a way the people will understand what God wants for the rest of the world. So when Peter talks about after that, what it means for us to be able to live in light of others and how we handle abuse, he's asking us to make sure that our response to that in no way brings discredit because we now try to say, fight fire with fire. We have to be concerned for representing God's will in the world and the way that God wants it to be represented. So I would say it this way, when it comes to issues of injustice, and I think when we read, how do we take what Peter says about the slave? Think of it as how Peter's asking us to handle injustice. And what it would say is this, we can use our voice, but we're not allowed to use violence. Mm. We're not allowed to fight in such a way that now we are just perpetuating the cycle that has led to the injustice to begin with. So if you're going to be abused, be abused for the right things, not the wrong things, because at some point they're going to recognize it was the right thing. At some point, we're going to take a step back and say, you know what? This person that we thought was the problem turned out they were showing us the solution. And our history is filled with people who have been unjustly treated. But over time, we came to see that they were right all along. And it's the way that they went about that 
There is a point to standing up to injustice in a nonviolent way, to standing up and speaking out, but in a way that doesn't perpetuate cycles of harm, so that when this is over, they will be able to see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Because again, we are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? As a priest, we represent God to the people and the people to God. As a community of God's people, we stand between God and the world in representation. Mm. And we're called to live that out, even in light of injustice, and not to fall prey to, this person is my enemy, I must destroy them. So very good. If we're going to be punished, don't let it be for the wrong things. Yeah. So very good. Um, You guys are there in Minneapolis, Minnesota, North Central University, Of course, Minneapolis has been uh, at the center of a lot of conversations this year in our nation uh, with the killing of George Floyd. You know, as we read this right now, Peter writing to the church, um, Rome is a superpower, a worldwide power, diverse, lots of people coming together, lots of different ideologies, thought processes, a melting pot on the outside, super strong, big economy, big army, yada, yada, yada. But we know on the inside, it's imploding, it's deteriorating, and there's division setting in. And this division is, is coming into the church. I mean, there's these pressure points. And so even as I'm asking, how is this relevant? It feels pretty relevant that the Bible 2000 years ago is commenting on slavery and giving course of action and points. And now here we are in 2020, still watching on the TV screen, moments of injustice and moments of inequality and lots and lots of questions. What has been your encouragement to your students? What has been your encouragement to the faculty that you lead and around you with how they're to handle um, what we've been watching, especially being there in Minneapolis in the epicenter, so much of, of these protests, many of these protests turning to riots, watching things like buildings burning. It, it's a tough time where I'm sure in your city, you're feeling immense pressure. How have you been a voice of unity? What are you doing to unite, unite the body and how do you continue to be a voice for those that are sensing such deep oppression? Well, I think there's three things that we want to avoid as Christians, and I'm going to use Minneapolis as my example. And one I've already said, that we can't participate in violence. That that doesn't become the way that we respond, but we also can't ignore the protest, and we can't dismiss it. You know, I, I think of the people who are protesting, and, and I immediately think of the man on the road to Jericho was left lying in a ditch, as Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And is the church going to see the protest as someone lying in the ditch calling out for help? Or are we simply going to walk to the side and go on our way and pretend like nothing happened? The church cannot afford to ignore what's going on. And I do know that in Minneapolis, we have actually had churches come together. And we have actually marched and we have worship and worship and song and we have gone to the George Floyd Memorial and we have been there as a presence. And I've talked to some local pastors who actually hang out at the George Floyd Memorial almost every day. And they're just there to minister to people and give spiritual care. Uh, we have to have our voice be heard. We have to be able to participate in the political process. And we have to be able to help our church navigate this. And I'm thinking from a pastoral perspective, because a lot of people weren't ready to bring their theology and their politics together. Mm. They weren't ready to think biblically about what was going on. That was something that was just for church, and now this is a whole other thing. And learning that, no, as Christians, it matters all the time. We've got to learn, and, and I sometimes put it this way, we've got to learn how to recognize the common grace that God wants to be good to the entire world, 
We've got to recognize the common good, that God wants us to work for the good of others and not just in our own self-interest. So we've got to look for the common ground. There are things that we can work with other people on that even if we don't agree in everything, we can still agree on this and we can work together. And if we are looking, if we see the common grace, if we are fighting for the common good, if we're searching for the common ground, on top of all of that, we can have an uncommon godliness that lets people recognize that there's something different about us in the way that we approach these things that gives hope that God can make a difference in lives. It's beautiful. I love the thought that you were giving earlier about that God wants to win a people for all people. And that really is the hope of the church. And in this season right now, where it does feel like the pressure is, is growing at times, I think there's a temptation for people to, to be tugged into culture, tugged into a worldview that is not the view that God would have for us, that we wouldn't view the world through the gospel, through the good news, that for all have fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news is, is that instead of getting death, we get the great reward of Jesus through his grace. And my concern, and part of the reason why I wanted to have this conversation today is, is when there's believers, maybe there's believers that have been in Christian homes their whole life, or maybe there's young believers and because we're dealing with pressure and because we're dealing with trials and because we're dealing with moments where there's lines being drawn in the sand about what it is that you believe, there's these portions in scripture at sometimes that some believers don't even know that are there. And then they get hit with these questions and they don't know how to have a rebuttal. They don't know how to have a response. What would be your encouragement or what would you say to those that are watching right now, listening right now in their car when you get to some of these tough passages in the Bible, slavery or things that go so against the culture today, how should we respond to those? What should we do with our questions? One, don't shy away from the question. You know, sometimes what we do is if, if we want to be faithful to the Bible and we don't like what it's saying, then we just turn the page <laughs> and we don't actually wrestle with what we're reading. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to ask questions but recognize that we are in a different culture than when the Bible was written. It's been passed on from culture to culture to culture until it's gotten to us because every culture that's had it has found it redemptive. Mm. You know, what matters to me that we have a Bible that has passages on slavery, and yet it was a Bible that was embraced by slaves in the New World because when they read Scripture, they found it to be for their liberation. So that's very instructive for me that there's something going on here. But we need to be able to recognize, one, that I have to read the Bible in light of the Bible. Mm -hmm. That it's one story being told from many different authors in different ways that builds off each other. And I can't just isolate a passage and read it in my own cultural context. I've got to read the Bible in light of the Bible, but I also need to learn how to read the Bible with the community, which is why I so appreciate what you're doing here. Because we need to reach out to other believers and say, how do you understand this? How do you wrestle with this? And what's even more important, I think, finding out that there are some passages that trouble other believers that we're not aware of because we're not aware of their context. Very and then now I realize, okay, here's another question I should be asking of Scripture. We've also got to read it with an openness to sources. You know, commentaries are a great thing. And I know that sometimes you might want to shy away from the academic, but there are a lot of great books that are written on dealing with these very kinds of things. A one that just came out recently that I would recommend to everyone, Simon Paula reading while black mm. that deals with how as an African-American 
scripture has been used. And his last chapter is on slavery, because he says for African-Americans, the whole thing on how we approach the Bible hinges on how we deal with the slavery passages. So we have these great resources out there on how to do this. And then we also have to read scripture with the sense on how it has changed things for the better. Recognize that if something is troubling me, it may not be that, oh, it's something here that no one else has seen before, but that I don't understand it. And I've got to recognize scripture as a whole has put us on a trajectory towards justice. It's put us on a trajectory towards hope and liberation. And that if that's the trajectory scripture puts us on, whatever question I have has to still recognize where this vehicle is taking me. And I can't be afraid that it's leading me to the wrong place. I just have to recognize I don't understand what this means right now. It's very good. Well, today's conversation has been encouraging. It's been helpful, and it's definitely been enlightening. Maybe just some closing remarks. Those that are listening, those that are watching, we're so grateful for those that continue to to engage and want to learn and want to grow and want to know what the Bible says about these things that are, I still think in many ways, taking place today. How should the Christian respond? What should the Christian worldview, what should the Christian perspective be based upon the Bible regarding the topic of slavery? We have to recognize that we are on a trajectory towards justice and that scripture being written in a time when slavery was, un, it's unimaginable not to have it, had all of these corrections of it that put us on the path to eventually abolishing slavery. And that in the same way that we can look to a time when we can abolish poverty, we can look to a time when we can abolish all forms of injustice and scripture has put us on that path and let's work towards that now. And in this country, in America, you know, as I say, we, we live in a world where it's as if Slavery itself, New World slavery, had such an impact that our entire country still exists in the crater that was caused by it. And we need to be able to recognize that and not ignore it, but recognize the hope that Scripture gives us that God frees people from slavery. That's the whole story of the Exodus. That's the hope that we have, and as the people of God, we're to be agents of that in the world. Dr. Tennyson, we are so very grateful for you. We're so thankful for the time that you took with us. I know our audience is going to enjoy this. If you're liking this video today, man, like it, subscribe, thumbs up, comment, share it with some other people. If you're listening to the podcast, of course, do all of the same. We believe this is very helpful content, but very encouraging. And uh, Dr. Tennyson, we got to get you back down here to Miami. Got to get you back on that beach. Got to get you back here preaching at Voo Church. But everyone here in Miami loves you and we appreciate you. And of course, we honor you. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you, Pastor. God bless.